This is the Pain Information Network, Episode 10. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. On today's episode, we're going to have Dr. Stan Helm join us, and we're going to talk about myths and facts in this vast world of pain medicine. We're going to talk about medications, controlled substances, non-controlled substances, what they do, what they don't do, what you can expect, the ups and downs. We're also going to get into some definitions that help us understand these medications a little better and hopefully relieve some of the anxiety that a lot of people have about them. And we're going to touch on the spine. That's really an in-depth subject, so we're just going to get started on it. And uh, a little uh, bit here and there, and we'll eventually get around to some pretty uh, deep discussions about how to treat spine pain by injection therapy and otherwise. Yeah, we'll just talk about uh, the types of uh, anti-inflammatory medicines that we use and why we use them. So let's get on with it. This is uh, Dr. Stan Helm. He's come back to visit us again today. How are you doing, Stan? I am doing great. Yourself? Well, it's great. Uh, Thanksgiving's over, and we're marching into the seasons. So um, ha- glad you pulled a little time aside, and let's talk about some myths and truths today. You know, I, I hear this. A-, a patient comes in and says, my doctor sent me here, and I-, I don't know really why I'm here. I know I hurt. My doctor says I need a blank, blank, blank. And to us, as uh, uh, pain physicians with a broad brushstroke, uh, we can... Uh, treat from the medical side, we can treat from the interventional side. We have to kind of blend this together and take what we know as a diagnosis, uh, one of the rules, and apply it to our tools. So let's start with medication. What about medications? You know, patients come in, they say, I don't want to be an addict. I don't want to take a lot of pain medicines and just become hooked on these things. Uh, What am I doing here? Can't my doctor do this for me? What do you think? I think that the uh, question of medications is one of the most interesting. That brings in a lot of different things. One is that we uh, originally felt 30 years ago that if we gave opioids, no one would have a problem with it. We now know that many people do have problems with it, but at the same time, it's a very valuable tool that allows people to function. So my concern in giving opioids is to make sure that you function and that you don't uh, misuse them. In other words, if we're giving them to you, you should be able to do more, that uh, be able to do things that you otherwise wouldn't uh, be able to do. This might be able to being able to work. It might be uh, able to go to church or visit the family. Uh, functional improvement doesn't need to be huge. Or changing, it's just something that being able to do things that have meaning to uh, for you in your life. Now, yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, being uh, being in the field of addiction, I also, uh, as you know, have my boards in addiction. You know, I, I I go through those definitions with the patient. I actually have it on a piece of paper. They read and they sign every time they come in, so they they understand that we're not trying to make you an addict. What we're trying to do is exactly what you just said: improve your function and quality of life. So. It's not about opioids all the time. There are other things we use. And, you know, um, we try to educate people. So there's this, this practical application of our knowledge that, no, we're not trying to introduce addiction into your life. But there's this other concept of dependence. And what do you think of that? 
Well, dependence is a uh, another interesting concept. You've the idea is that if you take the medications, you become dependent on them. This is a medical, not a psychological fact, so that it is possible that if you abruptly stopped the medications, you would go into withdrawal. And you know, people call that going cold turkey. That is something you need to be aware of when you give opioids. And if you're taking them, you don't want to stop them uh, abruptly. If you don't need them, uh, work with your doc- doctor to wean them down. It uh, is something that can, it, it just happens. There's no uh, moral import to it. It doesn't make you a good person or a bad person if you become dependent. It's just what bodies do. Exactly. And uh, dependence goes a, a long way. Dependence can be to antihypertensives, it can be to your blood pressure medicine. You can't abruptly stop that stuff. How about coffee? We all know uh, the coffee effect. Uh, you know, I, I got to get my caffeine fixed or I just don't feel right. So dependence goes across the board in medications. It isn't just all about opioids. But with many controlled substances, as we've talked about on the show, including benzodiazepines, including opioids, including uh, some of the other medications that uh, relieve a lot of symptoms, they just can't be abruptly stopped. And I want to underscore benzodiazepines. That's the Xanaxes, the Valiums. Uh, the Ativans, et cetera. You can't abruptly stop those medications. You've got to talk it over with the doctor. And that's kind of the segue into tolerance. So I'm taking these medications, and my doctor tells me he's uncomfortable using hashtags, air tags, uh, giving me more medicines. And he, he said that I'm getting used to these medicines. And that's a concept of tolerance, isn't it? That is. And tolerance has a biologic basis. In other words, it's based on real changes that occur in your body where the receptors can change within the, um, that the, that the uh, medicines are, uh, the opioids are binding to. Now, the interesting thing I see about tolerance is rather than increasing the dose, I'd rather rotate the uh, medication from one opioid to another, say from morphine to oxycodone because I don't want to keep on pushing the dose up. There is now a good understanding that we don't want to just give any dose. We want to see if it's effective. It's not effective at low doses. I don't think it's going to be effective at high. So we don't use tolerance as a reason to increase the dose. We use it to try and find medications uh, to uh, rotate around to to get around the tolerance. Yeah, exactly. And this... uh other definition that's uh, roaming around out there called pseudotolerance is kind of uh, a pseudo uh, misnomer. That's where. Let, let, let me jump in on that one. Pseudotolerance does not exist. Exactly. Pseudotolerance was based upon one 17 year old teenager who had cancer. And you've got to ask yourself what 17 year old has the skill set to deal with the fact that they might die? Mm-hmm. And that did not provide, that was used as a basis to give people uh, medications uh, based upon uh, acting out in inappropriate behavior. All it is is a rationale for enabling uh, patients to indulge in uh, the desire for more medications. And it, the concept is false and should be rejected. Exactly. Okay. I'm with you on that off the table. But now, not all pain medicines are narcotics or controlled substances, are they? Not at all. There are many different ways of having pain. We've just elevated, since the 80s, narcotics as the uh, 
one be-all and end-all, and that's been unfair to the other medications, medications like gabapentin or the various antidepressants, and these act uh, in some ways very similar to the uh, narcotics uh, and can be uh, extremely effective and oftentimes are all that uh, people need. Exactly. You know that duloxetine, for example, uh, trade name Cymbalta, it's labeled uh, for low back pain and peripheral neuropathy because it works in the central nervous system. So how odd it is to some people that we're prescribing an antidepressant for low back pain. They say, you think I'm crazy? You think it's all in my head? No, I don't think it's all in your head. All pain is in your head. That's where neurobiologically this stuff is processed, and that's why the FDA labeled it, right? Yeah, I like to give the example that your arm is sitting on the armrest. Until I mention that, you're not aware of it. Now, your nerves in your arm are working just fine. They're sending up uh, information up to the spinal cord in the brain, saying that there's pressure here, but that pressure is irrelevant, so the spinal cord and the brain have this process of filtering out what doesn't matter. If you move your arm and find a splinter or a nail, that information goes right through. And what the drugs like uh, Cymbalta or uh, Gabapentin do is to influence that filtering process so that you don't feel the um, uh, so that the pain isn't uh, coming through. Hopefully, yeah. So I guess we're going to back up a couple episodes that trended real well. Um, what is a controlled substance? I mean, we. We throw that term around a lot, and I briefly touched on it on a previous podcast, but it means a lot of things to a lot of people. What's it mean to you? Controlled substances. Oh, well, there's a formal definition of controlled substances. We've got the Controlled Substances Act of 1971, I believe, which provides a definition and divides these controlled substances into various categories. The uh, Schedule 1 is medications that are highly addictive and have no medical use, and this includes things like heroin and um, methamphetamine, also at the federal level, marijuana, which is an intense uh, area of debate. And Schedule 2 medications are the primary ones that we're using, which have a high uh, possibility for uh, addiction and also a, do have a legitimate medical use, which would be morphine, oxycodone, the other medications like that. And they go down ultimately to Schedule 5, which would include um, uh, cough relievers. Schedule 3 is where the benzodiazepines live. So yeah, the, the, yeah. the federal government has codified this out and... Uh, pretty precisely labeled what they are. There is a problem because there are substances that are not controlled substances because no one knew they existed. A chemist will come out and create a designer drug of abuse like spice, and they're not illegal simply because they're not yet uh, known about, and it's always a game of catch-up to uh, try to include those uh, drugs of abuse in with the controlled substances uh, list. Yeah, and um, it's a misnomer to think that a Schedule 2 is more potent than a Schedule 3. That's not true. Um, it's just uh, revolving around the potential for abuse. And I was at a drug enforcement meeting uh, not long ago, and a chemist was giving a lecture that kind of woke me up, said that... Uh, you know, it's hard to keep up with the new designer drugs. We just can't keep up with them. We'll be scheduling them as fast as we could, but uh, they're making one a month, and it's hitting the street. So this is a problem for the future. So controlled substances 
are just that. The, well, it's underlying the rule, the, the rule of thumb, and that's controlled. We have to have some control to protect the public. And I personally think benzodiazepines ought to be scheduled too. You know, they're, they're way overprescribed. Agree? Oh, the benzodiazepines are a major problem. Uh, I think we're getting close to the point where you will not see patients being given both benzodiazepines and opioids. In California, we're coming up with a new prescription drug monitoring program, uh, a new version of the current one. And if a if one physician writes for both an opioid and a uh, benzodiazepine, they're going to be flagged straight to the uh, state's Department of Justice. They're, the concern about that is so high. Yeah, uh, that still leaves open where other people are writing for the uh, benzodiazepine and we're writing for the opioid. Uh, but I think that is the realization of what a problem the interaction is between the two has become so great that uh, we'll, we'll stop seeing the two uh, prescribed concomitantly exactly. at the same time. You know that uh, when patients say, I'm, I'm scared about getting hooked on, on a narcotic, I say, what? You're, you're taking appraisalam, which is tra- trade name Xanax, and you've been taking it for three years. Worry more about that drug. That drug is highly habituating or uh, development of de- uh, dependence can be expected. Um, you know, you look at also the um, statistics from, uh, you know, the uh, unfortunate drug uh, uh, warning network uh, that uh, is the ER's report of adverse events in the community from drugs. And it's opioid benzodiazepine. It's those combinations. People don't understand. You can't drink with opioids. We all know that. But benzos and opioids, no one thinks about it. I mean, yeah. And the other one that's always thrown there also is soma, yeah, which is you know part of the uh, the triad and that's corresponding. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the, the problem, what I see is that people say, "Gee, I'm fine. You know, I'm handling my drugs, and something happens. Maybe they're deconditioned and they get they exercise more, as in moving from one apartment to another, and they take their medication dose and they overdose, or they perhaps they get a little pneumonia." and they take the regular medications, and the balance goes off, and they overdose. These combinations are extremely dangerous and have led to uh, many deaths, all of which I consider to be preventable. Yeah, and that's, uh, that goes back to that concept of tolerance. Uh, kind of a classic scenario is that a um, addict, I uh, say a heroin addict, I'm not going to pick on anything in particular, but I will pick on heroin, uh, goes to jail, and it goes to jail for two months. And they go out, and they go get their regular bag of heroin. Well, they don't have any tolerance left, so down they go, and they overdose. And that is a classic scenario. So, well, let's move on to injections. So, myths and truths. I heard my doctor says I need a blank, blank, blank. I need an injection. And he doesn't really define it. Well, what, do you, what do you do when a patient comes in and say, I'm here for an injection? Well, the first thing you've got to do is come up with a diagnosis as to why they need the injection. In other words, is the nerve root being irritated? Do you have a slipped disc? Or are you having some problem with the facet joints? The most common one would be an epidural injection. But uh, you do what you do with any patient. You take a history. You uh, do a physical exam. You take into account all the imaging data that you've got and other lab data electrodiagnostic studies and come up with a diagnosis and decide, okay, this is the type of injection that you need. It might be an interlaminar epidural injection, 
It might be a uh, transforaminal or a caudal injection, uh, facet injection, whatever it might happen to be. And then it becomes a question of what's worse, the thought of the injection or the pain. Now, everyone uh, should be nervous about having any procedure done. You can have a skin tag removed, and you should be concerned about it. The people I see who have problems are the ones that say, it doesn't bother me, doc, and you get them into the procedure room, and then they uh, shatter like a cheap glass. Uh, people who say, I'm really afraid, do just fine because they're in touch with their feelings and they don't have the um, uh, the, the problems uh, during the procedure. Now, it's, there are all sorts of options, too, in terms of t how much sedation to give. Uh, it, it varies um, variably. I think where you are, uh, oftentimes people may not use sedation. Where I am, most people, but not everybody, wants sedation. The big advantage of not having sedation is if you want to go to work or whatever, uh, you can pick up and uh, leave the procedure room and, and uh, have it. Uh, sometimes you even need to do procedures under... Um, General anesthetic. I, I tend not to like to do this because I like the feedback I get during the injections. Uh, but I've got one fellow who's a instructor for the Marines at the big base we've got out here, and he'll go out and um, be with a, you know running around the hills at 3 a.m. with a 50-pound pack with all the 19-year-old, uh, 18-year-olds recruits and loving it. But when he has an injection. He has to go to sleep. Hmm. So it's just a, a lot of it's variable. I tell people that sedation for an injection is like being at a wedding reception. The waiter comes around at the end of the reception has got a pot of coffee. Do you want a cup of coffee? Yes, that's great. You get your cup of coffee. If not, no, he goes on to the next person. So whether or not you get sedation is purely a function of what your um, your desire is. Yeah, and I hear that. I hear patients say, well, my neighbor told me that uh, they really hurt, and they're horrible, and you can be paralyzed. And first the thing I tell them is, uh, that's not your friend. <laughs> that's an uninformed individual who's doing nothing but scaring you. And you need to go back and tell them that uh, they need to butt out. So um, I hear that stuff, and it's just it's not true. These injections should not hurt. Um, the sedation is for anxiety. It is not to make the injections hurt less. They, they shouldn't really hurt. There are some procedures that are more stimulating. I'll use that word than others. But um, we use local anesthetic, and we put in medicines. And so the other question I get, and you can comment on this, is what do they do? Uh, what are we doing back there when we're doing injection? Uh, you're putting medicine in, and what's it doing? Well, you know, technically what we're doing is, and, and by the way, going back to the issue of it hurting, sometimes if a nerve is really inflamed and you get the needle close to it, it might uh, hurt. And if that happens, that's a good thing because that means you really, really needed that injection. Yeah, it's stimulating. <laughs> and, and, the, um, and the analogy I draw is if I come up and I slap you on the shoulder, it's fine. But if you have a bad sunburn and I slap you on the shoulder, it really hurts like the Dickens. So it's the same thing with that nerve. If that nerve is all sunburned or inflamed, then you get close to it, it can uh, hurt. Now, in terms of what we're doing, you know, the, the general protocol is you come into the uh, facility, you get checked in, they make sure that you are who you are, we're doing what procedure we're doing. Uh, if you're going to have sedation, uh, an IV will be started. 
get you into the room and you lie on your stomach or your back, depending upon the type of procedure, uh, in the room. And then we use an X-ray uh, to guide where we're going to be doing the injection. So we clean off the skin. You'll feel that. Uh, you might feel a skin, a uh, little marker we use on the skin to uh, figure out where we want to make the entry point. Uh, you, feel, you feel the numbing of the skin, uh, and then the uh, needle will be injected. And as we inject the needle, we'll put in local anesthetic just to make sure that it's all comfortable. And then when we get to where we want to go, uh, we inject. And usually what we inject is a local anesthetic and a uh, steroid. There are times when I don't use the steroid. For example, someone who's a brittle diabetic, and it might make the blood sugar go up, so I just don't use it and just inject with the um, local anesthetic. And we're doing a couple of things there. We're doing uh, the big thing, I think, is really just washing out all the things that are around the nerve, all the chemicals that are irritating the nerve. Uh, and the steroid uh, and the local anesthetic uh, do that. They have some other effects, too, that get very uh, wonkish, and I won't discuss. But that that's the gist of it. Now, we're not curing anything, but oftentimes there is no cure for these things. So if we can keep you functioning and give you injections three times a year, maybe four times a year, and you're able to keep on doing all the things you need to do and you don't need uh, as much medicine or you don't need any medicine, uh, your activity goes up, your pain goes down, then uh, that's exactly the way uh, to go. Yeah, and, and that's an important point you brought. You brought up two things I want to I nail down. You're talking about spinal injections here. and. Correct. Um, if your doctor isn't using an x-ray machine around the spine, don't get the procedure done. It's just it's standard of care nowadays. And you got to see where that needle's going. The tip of the needle is sharp, and, it, and if it's done right, it's a good day, and it's good for you overall. Now, the other thing is um, these procedures, you're right, they're not curative. But they can improve function and quality of life substantially. You know, I can't cure diabetes either. But if it's controlled, your quality of life goes up. Hypertension, your quality of life goes up. That doesn't mean we're curing anything. We're using tools. And in this case, an injection is a tool. And diabetes and hypertension management, that would be like a medication probably. So you, you hit right on it. And when we start talking about longer-lasting procedures like radiofrequency neuroablation, we're starting to get into very special-type procedures. But... You, you are correct. We are going in there and decreasing the inflammatory component and uh, improving the, uh, the cellular milieu, the, 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 the way and why you hurt, um, and hopefully improving your overall uh, outcome, diminishing your need for medications, wouldn't you say? And, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that we stand somewhere between uh, surgery and internal medicine. We're, we're doing surgery, we're doing procedures, but at the same time, internal medicine, by definition, treats chronic diseases, the ones you mentioned, the hypertension, the asthma, the diabetes. And we are treating chronic pain, which will hopefully not be a chronic disease for you, but it may well be. And if it is a, uh, a chronic disease, if it's not just an acute uh, slip disc where you're irritating the nerve root and that heals and you go on, if it's a chronic issue, then we are looking to provide you the tools to maintain your activity. Yeah. Well, that was excellent. 
good discussion. So I guess to wrap it up, to summarize, uh, myths and truths, uh, let's go back to medication. Not all drugs are going to get you hooked. And a good medical manager of pain will keep you from going down a pathway uh, to oblivion, going down that a is rat hole. M- yeah. Moses did not walk off a mountain with a, f- a third tablet that said that you uh, had to have opioids. You, not <laughs> Opioids don't work for everyone. If they don't work for you, you should get off them. If they're going to work, they're going to work at low doses, and don't take them with benzos. Yeah, that's a truth. That's an absolute truth. And then as far as injections go, no, they don't have to hurt. And you don't have to be afraid of them. And a skilled provider can make a difference. Are they curative? I don't know. Sometimes I don't see a a person for a year. But not always. So what do you think? Yeah. And the um, other thing about not being afraid is, you know, everybody should be nervous. The best way to not be nervous about an injection is the same as the best way to be not nervous about a term paper. You have it, and when it's done, it's, it's no big deal. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've said, I'm done. And they go, is that it? And I go, yeah, that, that's it. I, I told you. <laughs> okay. Oh, my, yeah. my favorite quote is some kid who was about 20 or 21 years old, and I do the procedure, and he looks up at me and says, you mean I stayed up all night worrying about that? Oh, I hear that a lot. Well, okay, let's uh, let's move on. And I want you to comment on some jewel and junk. Uh, a jewel of a treatment uh, it makes a difference. And then there's junk. We hear, the, we hear about crap treatments all the time. Uh, so let, let's, pick a, let's pick a winner and a loser. Go ahead. Well, you know, for osteoarthritis of the knees, one of the things we can do is inject um, drugs like uh, Suparts or Hyalgan uh, into the knee. And that works very effectively. That's how you're on this, right? How you're on this. Yeah. And then there are also oral preparations of hyaluronidase where people are selling you this stuff to take in a a pill. And why getting that into the stomach is going to help the knee is lost on me. So if you want to take it, take it the right way, take it with an injection. Don't waste your money buying an over-the-counter oral preparation with uh, hyaluronidase. with the hope that it's going to help your uh, knee pain. Right. Uh, Over-the-counter, anything should be scrutinized. I brought up about NSAIDs that uh, people think they're benign if they're over-the-counter. They are not. Uh, an uh, Advil study was stopped because of uh, uh, significant complications a number of years ago, and that was over-the-counter. And, you know, taking stuff that people say have no side effects, if it has no side effects, it's not anything. So just beware. Beware out there. Be a consumer. Well, Dr. Helm, thank you very much for coming on. We're going to have you back. You know, the spine's a big subject, and I think uh, probably next time we're going to start talking about the procedures in a little more detail and and start nailing down what works and really uh, what you want to focus on, uh, diagnosis-specific. But uh, we're making progress. and uh, Look forward to that. And, and Hans, thank you for making this happen. I think this is a a wonderful program. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was good, and I appreciate you listening. Um, it's a broad subject. It's a 
really deep subject when we start talking about medications, controlled substances, the spine, injections, and the like. So it's uh, good to start a little slow. We'll work our way through it over the future podcasts and get deeper and deeper. Once again, thanks, Dr. Helm, and uh, we look forward to having you back on soon. Um, Once again, this is an informational uh, network, and it's uh, important that you talk over all of these subjects uh, should you have questions with a qualified provider. Also, could you leave uh, some uh, feedback for us on iTunes? I've got some good feedback this week, and we're starting to incorporate it into the show. So um, that's that's really important to help us uh, keep moving forward. And we appreciate you listening. Don't hesitate to contact us through paininformation.com as well. And we'll see you next week.